I'm Trisha Johnson, host of Aspen Ideas To Go. I'm stepping away from the mic for our special series. An Aspen Ideas Festival presenter is leading these intimate conversations that delve deeply into fascinating topics. Here's another interview in our series on activism. Our conversation about a new era of activism continues on the Aspen Ideas to Go Offstage podcast series. Hey everyone, I'm Wajahat Lee, a contributing op-ed writer for the New York Times. Thanks for joining me. Nationally recognized immigrants' rights leader. The director for the Dream.us, the largest scholarship program for dreamers with over 400,000 scholars as they fight for justice and dignity for all immigrants. A holder of three degrees in music education, early childhood education, and special education for kids from K through 12. And undocumented. Not an alien, but a daughter, a friend, a human being named Gabby Pacheco, who came to America at the age of eight from Ecuador without papers. And by the age of, Gabby? About 25, 26. 25-ish. <laughs> became the first undocumented Latina to testify where? In Congress. In front of the Congress for Immigration Reform. That was eight years ago. You can do the math, and now you know her current age. I won't say it. But her activism led to the? Trail of Dreams, the DACA program. Yes. <laughs> yes, the DACA program, the Deferred Action for Childhood Arrivals. Gabby, thanks so much for joining me today. Yes, great to be here. If you could talk to the 25-year-old, uh, right now with what's happened in the last eight years, what would you tell her? Brace yourself. Mm. Um, a lot is more to come. And something that um, I've had to quickly learn is that change is painfully slow. And it'll be a roller coaster ride. Um, we will have big wins like DACA, and then we will have big loses like having the Trump administration end the program mm. um, in September 5th, 2017. But go beyond that, right? Go um, against Muslims, go against people with TPS, go against children. Mm. Um, and so I would tell myself, right, pace yourself, take deep breaths, um, because this is a fight for the long haul. And when you were 25 speaking in front of Congress, what were your hopes at that time? It's Obama, it's the administration, Democrats, uh, you know, immigration reform is always a hot button fault line issue, but we did not have a presidency which called Mexicans rapists and criminals at that time. Yeah. Uh, we did not have a presidency which said uh, immigrants are invading, infesting, breeding, um, uh, where uh, immigrants were compared to MS-13 terrorist gangs, uh, where a Muslim ban just dropped. Yeah. Five to four decision in the Supreme Court. We're sitting here on a Wednesday, uh, a day after the Supreme Court made that decision. Um, and maybe things weren't as bad at that time. Did you, the 25 year old uh, Gabby at that time, think, oh, we're moving towards progress? Yeah, I, I think so. And I started my activism actually during the Bush administration. And during the Bush administration, what we were seeing was a lot of the workforce rates. And right. um, actually in 2006, immigration came after me and tried to shut me out. And they detained my parents and my sisters. And I had to bargain with them, telling them that I wouldn't talk to the media anymore. And I would stay quiet, lay low. 
And I thought, okay. Who, who you did know, you bargain with specifically? With ICE. So I, I went in and like I had conversations with the ICE director and the people in Miami um, who were holding my family. So um, your family was held essentially as ransom? Yes. And I thought, okay, you know, this is bad. And, and then during the, the Obama administration, um, famously, we started calling uh, President Obama the deporter-in-chief because um, it, it just ramped up the deportations. And there weren't workforce rates, but there were, you know, randomly young people getting detained and um, the taillights. And, and there was this partnership that the Obama administration was really successful in, in partnering with local police officers and, and bringing forward the 287G agreement. And they created this program called Secure Communities. Right. And so um, we were seeing a lot more deportations. And I thought, okay. And when we were able to get um, in 2011, the Morton Memo, and then 2010, DACA, and then 2014, the DAPA program, which was just a buildup and finally like steering. Um, when I spoke in front of Congress, I thought even naively what I thought last week that Congress was going to do something to fix the issue of of dreamers and DACA, that we were going to get it done. And um, I had so much hope because you had the famous Gang of Eight, right? Which Marco Rubio (laughs) now denounces. Yes. Yeah, so now, now he says, Republic. what Gang of Eight? Yeah, he was like, I was never part of it. But for the listeners who don't know the Gang of Eight and this bipartisan effort, that brief but honorable bipartisan effort to pass immigration reform, can you give them a little bit of background? Yeah, and, and so these senators came together and worked really hard on putting together uh, imperfect but doable legislation in 2013 that it actually passed um, the Senate. And then, of course, um, as a lot of things happened in the House, um, it died. But it was, you know, the closest we ever got to getting some sort of immigration reform that would have legalized um, the undocumented population that would have, you know, not done the big, beautiful border wall, but put money in. That was a quote to big, beautiful. (laughs) Yeah, that's not, I don't think Gabby believes in the the big, beautiful. I quote, yes, big, big quotes. Um, I mean, for the listeners, um, you know, there's like 350 million Americans. I'm exaggerating a little bit. Let's say 330 million. There's 11 million yeah. undocumented immigrants in America, 4 million minors. Yeah. And it's not like people are completely hiding. You know, we depend on them. Yeah. Um, and so I just want th- that number is sobering when I first read it years ago. 11 million yeah. undocumented immigrants who are here. Yeah. And then you have people like uh, those from Central America that have temporary protective status, some from the Sudan and other countries that the Trump administration has now ended their temporary status that they've had, um, some for decades. And so... Um, Haiti also, right? Haiti, El Salvador, Honduras, all the countries where people right now are fleeing because of violence and um, just the danger that they have. Earthquakes, natural homes. disasters. Yes. And so so all those people that have been here are being told that next year they need to leave the country and go back to those countries. Um, so during that time, there was a lot of hope because we thought, this is it. We're going to get this done. Um, in 2012, Obama won and he won the Latino vote. And I think there was a lot of people that felt that um, finally there was this wave of people saying we need to pass something on immigration um, is overdue. Voters wanted, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. And then nothing happened. And Eric uh, Cantor. Yeah lost his re-election campaign. It got blamed on immigrant and him uh, trying to do some sort of Well, what happened last night? Yeah. In New York? Yeah. Who won? A 28-year-old Latina. And and what? <laughs> and do you know her name? You want to tell her name? 
Uh, Alejandra, right? Yeah. Uh, Boricua, 20 yes. years old, who won uh, upended Ocasio. Crowley, yes. who's a machine uh, Democrat who was going to eventually replace Pelosi, they said. This 20-year-old Boricua young woman was a bartender a year ago. Uh, and what, she was shocked. The, the image of her winning yes. is just like, what? Yes. Uh, but, I get chills. <laughs> but the, re- the reason why I mentioned that is you just brought up Cantor. And people are making parallels to Cantor got dethroned, if you will, by kind of an upstart grassroots Tea Party candidate. And uh, it caused tremendous anxiety. And you said the immigrants were to blame. Mm-hmm. Well, now you have a, a Latina Boricua woman who just toppled a established white man. And I did a tweet yesterday, and I just want your thoughts on this, is now you're going to, if you will, stoke white anxiety on the left, blaming Oh, yeah. The Latinos. Oh, my gosh. Yes. And last night we were actually having a, a very uh, good conversation um, about this, right? And and how during the Obama administration, the anxiety for immigrants rose, yeah. right? And I think part of that, just part, um, is also what gave us Trump. And you go through a recession and people are losing their jobs. People can't find jobs. And so what do you do, right? You don't blame a system. You don't blame a government. You don't blame the people that are creating those things. No, you blame other people. And so you start blaming immigrants. You blame, you know, you don't look within yourself to see what it, what could I have done better? And I think that, um, uh, the election yesterday is going to be one of those, and there's going to be so many finger pointing. But at the end of the day, there's a couple of things that um, Alexandria won handedly. Yeah, well, she made that happen, yeah. right? She walked um, for five months in the snow, um, you know, getting those signatures so that she can get on the ballot, and she finally did. And um, I think that uh, one, it shows us that money is not all. Canvassing and the power of people and the power of you know, reaching out, which is, to me, one of the reasons why Eric Cantor lost, right? But, but isn't that a representation, <clears throat> you know, I was saying yesterday, isn't this a representation of a true democracy? Oh, yeah. She comes from a district where many people look like her. Yeah. She shares the hopes and concerns of most of her constituents. And a woman like her winning shows you that you don't need wealth, you don't need privilege, regardless of your ethnicity yeah. or and, gender, you win. And, 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 and I it shouldn't say, be celebrated. And I want to say even more than that, because it shouldn't be that because you're a woman, you can do a better job than a man. It can be because you're Latina, you can do a better job than anybody else. No, it's because you understand, because you know what's happening. It's because you're engaged, right? And and the other thing is that, yeah, she was a bartender, but she was really heavily engaged in the election. And she knows the issues. You hear her speak. She's passionate about it. And she'll be the youngest member of Congress. She would be the youngest member of Congress if she wins. And the thing is that, you know, she wasn't talking about her being a Democrat, it wasn't about a party. It was about the issues that the community cares about. And I think that that, at the end of the day, is what allowed her to win. So I need to unpack so much that you said, which is awesome. And I unfortunately only have 15 minutes with you, which is now a sin. Uh, <laughs> but, you know, you, the blaming of Latinos, right? Uh, immigrants, um, people of color. Which I'm going to stop you right there, because it's really important that we always, when we talk about immigrants, we always talk about Latinos. No, that's but, very good. And you, you got me. Yeah. Because <laughs> there's also because Jose uh, Jose Vargas, uh, undocumented uh, Filipino American, who came here as a kid, really without anyone, he he made a great point just now. He said, and I just see, look, it's just mm-hmm. the power of conditioning, and I know it. Mm-hmm. And he says when people talk about immigrants, 
hey, why do you always say Latinos or mm-hmm. undocumented, always Latinos? And you mm-hmm. just saw me, a person who knows better, <laughs> programmed, and I just did it. This, this power of language and words and why they matter, and specifically how they have been used by one party in particular to demonize entire communities and hold them accountable for sins that they have not committed, such as taking jobs away from the Rust Belt and, you know, make yada, Look, yada, yada. It, it's... We live in sound bites time, right? We live in where you quickly don't take the time to read a full article. You scan through it. Um, videos have to be 60 seconds or else you lose the, the audience, right? I hope somebody's still listening to this It's over. Right now. It's just my mom. My mom's listening. <laughs> but, Hi, mom. You know, it's just so easy. And the fact is, look, yes, the largest um, population of immigrants are Latinos. True. So I think that's why it's so easy to do that. But I think it's really important to make sure that we always talk about the other people because the other people either get left behind or then it's just painted as a Latino issue. And um, not as an American issue. Not exactly. And not as a human issue. Right. Like we're talking about migrants. They are millions of migrants across the, the world and there have been right and so i was talking once to um a native american who was saying you know this is my land and i was like yeah but before this was your land you were somewhere else and the world you know let's not get all nerdy here but when there was pangea people were just not really straight crazy. <laughs> nerdy i think it's the first time pangea has been dropped at the aspen ideas <laughs> festival you went way back but you know gabby took the gabby migrants. took the delorean five thousand years back <laughs> But migrants have been, or people have been migrating since it's the human the condition. Yeah, you know, and I and um, so I I teach right sometimes, and I go to classrooms and I talk to to children, and the way that I unpack migration is I ask them, you know, how many of you lived somewhere else before you came here, and how many of you are going to be going to a different school from fifth grade to sixth grade? And I'm like, you're migrating. That's what migration mm-hmm. is. And in D.C., it's really easy to do because most of these kids are, you know, their parents are uh, senators and representatives that move, right, and do things. So for them, they're like, yeah, I came from California or I came from New York and now I'm living here. And I'm like, well, you are an immigrant. Welcome to the immigration world. And so you know, immigration, it's such a fascinating thing because we're all immigrants. And every time that I I have conversations with white Americans, they're like, yeah, my great, great, great grandfather came from Ireland or my great grandfather came from Italy. And I'm like, then why can you not understand what is happening? I went to a Trump rally two weeks before the election. Uh, I was the only journalist at the rally. I was the only person of color. I talked to a lot of Trump supporters. There was a Latina woman from Honduras. Yes. And I was like, okay, got to talk to you. Mm -hmm. Uh, Why are you voting for Trump? And there was a level of anger uh, from her towards you, Mm -hmm. undocumented uh, uh, immigrants who came to this country. And she said, I did it right. Mm -hmm. I waited in line. I didn't jump uh, ahead. Mm -hmm. I did it legally. These people cut ahead and they get in and they make me and my people look bad. And there was intense loathing of Hillary Clinton. She said if Clinton won, she'd go back to Honduras. I'm like, really? One of the murder capitals of the world, you'll go back? She goes, I'll, I'll probably go back. And I said, so, so so the immigration issue for you is one of the key issues why you're voting for Trump? She said, yes. Unpack that. So I talked to a lot of people like that. And um, I actually have, through family, 
um, people that are, for example, from Nicaragua and have said the same thing. And I've asked them, how did you get your papers? Well, in the 90s, there was a law. I'm like, oh, there is a law, right? Was it called Nakara? Yes, that's right. So there was a special law carved out just for you that allowed you and your people that came at a certain time to get some sort of status. That is not true for people from Mexico, people from Ecuador, people from Brazil, et cetera, et cetera. Sometimes I ask people, so did you have money? Oh, yeah, yeah, I had money. I was middle class, but I was you know, scared. And so that's why I left. And I was like, wonderful. So what was your process? Oh, I was able to get a visa. I was able to. I'm like, well, do you know that 60% of immigrants that come through the country come fleeing for whatever reasons through the border? They don't have the money. They don't have sometimes the education. We're not talking about the doctors that can get a visa to get here. We're talking about people who are wanting a better life, sometimes for themselves, majority of the time for their families. I talk to Cubans constantly about this. And they say, well, it's because we've had, we've been living on the, the regimen of the Castro brothers. And I'm like, well, you know, there's people in Venezuela that are living under the Maduro and people that in, in Chile were living under Pinochet and right. all these other folks, right? Why are you so different than others, right? And why is it so bad? Explain to me why is it so bad for Cubans to come here, to have a process, to seek asylum or to seek, you know, their status. I said, Marco Rubio wouldn't be a Senator Rubio. Congresswoman Ileana Ross Layton wouldn't be that. Mm. Dr. Eduardo Padron, who is the college president of the, the largest college in, in the country, Miami Dade College, wouldn't be able to be that. Well, and, right? uh, and it weren't. And also uh, Mike Pence and Stephen Miller are the textbook examples of chain migration, yeah, which is also called family reunification. <laughs> yeah. But sometimes people forget, right, because... I think it's when you get otherized, when they don't look like you. And also, this is a talking point and also a concern and sentiment heard from many Trump supporters and Republicans. They say, we've heard the kids. We've seen this issue at the border with kids being separated. We're compassionate people. We don't have horns on our heads. But guess what? We're a, we're a country. And every nation state needs borders. Yes. And every and nation I state see, has national I security. Say that. I want to say something about that because, uh, you know, this whole make the line. I'm like, show me the line. Tell me what I can do, right? So I myself was able to get my green card last year. And the way I was able to Congrats. do that, thank you, was through my husband who waited 25 years to be able to get his papers. Mm. Um, uh, he was undocumented. He crossed the border when he was three. So finally, you know, he lucked out. And it just, and it, this is how the way it happened. Attorney that was looking at his case contacted a friend that worked at USCIS and said, can you please review the case? The case, nobody wanted to touch. It was just sitting there. So they looked at the case. They finally saw that, yes, he has good merits. They moved the case forward. And then he becomes a green card holder. Years later, uh, five years later, he becomes a citizen. And then he's able to then petition me, mm. right? Mind you, um, we had to get attorneys and pay fees for that. We had to pay the fee, which was about 1500 which I happily paid. And then we waited about nine months to do that, right? So there was a process for me, but it was through getting married. And it was only because I came to the country with the visa. If I was part of the 60% that came through the border, there's no process for me. Yeah. So I was lucky that I came with my family with a, a, a tourist visa and my family overstated. Um, that I was able to actually have that availability for me. But I had to get married. 
What if, you know, and, and the funny thing is we tell undocumented people, do not date other undocumented people because then, you know, what do you do? And even before um, gay marriage was legal, what if I was to be gay? Right. What if I wanted to marry a woman? What, what then? Right. I, I can't get any rights. So thank God that changed. But why I'm trying to explain all this is that it's such a mess. The bureaucracy, the the way our immigration system is, is so outdated. It makes no sense. It's not about families. It's not about reuniting them. It really is about do you have money? Do you have access? And do you have power? Take me to May. Donald Trump blames the Democrats says uh, that his policy is not a policy, but, you know, needs to go needs to go to Congress. Um, we know it's a policy. Uh, according to um, Lindsey Graham, a uh, senator from uh, South Carolina, Republican, he said Donald Trump, he could just pick up the phone, call DHS, change the policy, which in the past two months, 2,300 kids have been forcibly separated uh, from their parents at the border. Uh, according to McClatchy, uh, which just came out two weeks ago, this uh, article, uh, they contacted uh, Health and Human Services that has said that they have essentially lost track of 6,000 kids. Um, what changed with Trump and this policy that was implemented about two months ago? Well, the separation of the families, right, and the children. And how horrible, right, to tell a mother, we need to take your child because it's time for a bath and not bring them back. Like, Hello, haven't we heard this before? And you with know, no Steven, receipts. Someone with, said that you even if you go to Walmart and get something, you get a receipt. But some people don't even have receipts. They have no they, idea. They have no idea, and the government doesn't know. And it's going to take them time to start reuniting some of these children with their parents. But what makes me so angry about all this is that people are saying, "Well, this is the Democrats' fault, or this is Congress's fault, or this is the parents' fault because they should have known better, right?" And not brought the kids. Yeah. And I'm like, these people are lying right in front of us. They said, well, it wasn't, it's not what we're doing. And then the next day, yes, this is what we're doing. You're referring to the tweet by DHS Secretary Kristen Nielsen. Yes. And then you have Trump saying, well, this is not my doing. This is what Obama did. I'm just following the laws. And then says an executive order saying, no, I can, I, 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 sorry, no, take it back. Right. What a mess this administration is doing. And how horrible. And let me tell you, yes, I feel very anxious, depressed, and upset. And I feel like this is really getting to me, to my mind and to my heart. But what is it doing to those children? What is it doing to those parents? And we're talking generations, right? What is it doing to our country? When you hear tender care facilities, what does it do to you? I I, I can't. Like, I can't even start to think, right, of, of what that means. I've seen... You know, my parents shackled. I've seen mm. um, what it is to have an ankle bracelet. My, my father and my sister had to wear them, um, you know, after this whole thing of being detained. Until this day, my father's not the same person, right? He he feels anxious. He can't sleep at night because you ha- he had to sleep. Trauma. Trauma, right? And so, and then, you know, we're, we're leaving this behind historically for our future generations to know, right? The same way we did it to blacks with um, slavery, the same way we did it to- um, Japanese Americans, World Japanese, War II. The Chinese, to Mexican Americans. When um, the Bracero program ended, they just started deporting people, people mm-hmm. that had created roots here. Um, you know, what, they, what they've what they done to uh, the the indigenous communities, right? The, the folks that 
we're here that we're just killed, right? The, the trail of tears. So, you know, I feel like that's happening and I feel so upset at myself because I feel like I need to do more. I just don't know what. I'm gonna, final question is this, is I, I deliberately start off using language uh, that humanized you because you're a human being. Yes. And we're dealing with language and tweets right now which talk about invasion and breeding and caravans and terrorists and rapists and criminals. Um, uh, but you are dreamers and you are human beings and there's 800,000, I believe, dreamers who, based on the promise that the government would come to a fix, outed themselves yeah. voluntarily, are in the public, in the open, much like yourself. And as a result of Donald Trump's September executive order, you are now vulnerable. Because after opening yourself up and saying, hey, I'm undocumented, something's going to happen now. I did everything right. You know, I met all the criteria and requirements to become a dreamer, which people yeah. sometimes forget that, you know, you just don't become it. You have to, like, prove it. You guys are now in the open. You are visible targets. Every day is a day of uncertainty. And I believe in stories. And I believe that the listeners listening to this, you can go back and forth on policies and mm -hmm. acronyms and national security and he said and she said. But stories is what really connects people. And so how are you feeling right now as a person who came here at the age of eight and just told us you love this country, you feel American, you are American, you are now out in the open every day as a target. How are you feeling? So um, I think the best way to tell you is with a story. <laughs> so um, about two weeks ago, I was in D.C., and um, we were showing some interns uh, the monuments at night. And we decided to go get some ice cream. So we go to City Center, which is the place where Stephen Miller lives. And every time I see it, I say, look, Stephen Miller lives here. Isn't it nice? Look, he lives here. And people are like, what? And I think it's just me trying to call him. Right? Like, I really want to see him. And there he was, right in front of me, walking. Wow. It's 11-something at night. And I see my nephew, and my nephew's, you know, gives me so much hope. Um, he's doing an internship up in the Senate, and I push him and I say, "Go, go, 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 talk to him, right? Like, you young person, right?" And he's like, looks at me, he's like, "Uh-uh." So I run up to him and I try to talk to him. To Stephen Miller. To Stephen Miller, and I'm like, "Mr. Miller," and um, he said, "Good night." And I, I continue and I said, "Mr. Miller, I'm an immigrant rights activist. My name is Gabby Pacheco." And I, when I said that, he stopped, he looked at me, and then he said goodnight, and he keeps going. And I kept on trying to, and I don't remember everything I said. I know that I told him, I've met with your boss before. Um, uh, I, you know, I just was trying to, to get him to talk civil. to me. I was civil. But I also, there was a part of me that... I wanted him to know I was there. I wanted him to know that I wasn't afraid of him. Mm. And I wanted him to feel uncomfortable. And, you know, there was a part where I said to him, you do not want to talk to me? And he said, no. And I left him, right? But um, why am I telling you the story? And, and uh, I, I think that we need to, one, sh why we sh share stories because we don't want to be invincible anymore, and we don't be we don't want to be defined by the media and by this president and by anybody else. We want people to know who we are by by our actions, our words, how we look. Right? I um, I've famously have hugged Jorah Pyle. I have asked Ann Coulter for wow. a hug, and 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 it's all because I want them to know 
I am here. I'm human being. Please see me, my humanity, because as ugly as your humanity is, I see you too. Well, Aspen sees and hears Gabby Pacheco, daughter, wife, green card holder now, (laughs) educator, leader, dreamer. Thank you so much. Thank you. Make sure to subscribe to Aspen Ideas To Go wherever you listen to your fine podcasts. Also, follow us at Aspen Ideas year-round on Twitter and on Facebook at Aspen Ideas. The Aspen Institute is a nonpartisan forum for values-based leadership and the exchange of ideas. I'm Ajat Ali, a contributing op-ed writer for The New York Times. Thanks for listening. <laughs> <laughs>